Welcome to the Choice Happens Podcast, where you can choose different, do different, and become the person you say you've always wanted to be. Here's your host, Emily Carpenter. Joining us today, we have Adrian Hale from the Rochester Chamber of Commerce from Rochester, New York, my hometown. And I'm excited to have you here today, Adrian, and hear about your story and all the great stuff you're going to share with us. Thank you so much for having me on this morning, Emily. I've been looking forward to this interview for quite some time, so let's get to it. <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah, so I, I found out about you because of Facebook. I love how social media can connect us that way. And a, a person I went to high school with put something up on Facebook, and it was an article talking about you. And just from that short article, I was inspired enough that I wanted to reach out to you and learn more and just meet you. Mm -hmm. I think you just have that sort of energy that people are drawn to because you have so much good that you want to share. So I'd like to start with that. Tell us about your story. You know, what is it that makes Adrian Hale, Adrian Hale? I just like saying Adrian Hale. I love that name. (laughs) Thank you so much. So I think there's a lot of things that make me me, but I, I want to have a candid answer for you. And I, I want to touch base a little bit into my faith and my understanding of who I am, because I think that was extremely important in helping me overcome some of the insurmountable challenges that I had to confront growing up. Um, so mm. I grew up in um, the northeast side of Rochester, New York, which for anyone who's unfamiliar with Rochester, we're a Rust Belt city. So post-industrialization, a lot of our um, economies suffer post-manufacturing. And so I grew up in, in poverty. Um, I had a mother and a father, neither of which who graduated high school, but they tried to instill in me at a very young age the importance of an education. And so they would, you know, read to me and teach me my colors and whatnot. So I started Head Start and pre-K ahead of the pack, um, which was important because, you know, in the midst of all of this suffering and struggle, my mom was kind of trying to instill in me this sense of purpose and identity that would come into play later. And so the most vivid, you know, story I can remember is I, um, I was really young, walked into the store with my mom and she had just bought a bunch of encyclopedias, I think from like a yard sale or something. Hmm. And so as we're walking down the street to the store, she, I'm asking her as a young kid does, you know, um, you know, mommy, when am I going to need all those encyclopedias you just bought? <laughs> like, you know, I'm like first grade. She's like, no, and I'm like second grade. She's like, no, and I'm like third grade. You know, being a obnoxious kid, I'm all the way up. Yeah. And it's up to like 13 or something. And she says, that's when you're going to need it. And I'm like, 13th grade? She's like, yeah, that's college. And I said, what's college? And my mom's answer was so profound. She said, college is the place where you can go to become whatever you want to be. Wow. And then I say, you know, like an astronaut. She said, like an astronaut. And I say, like the president. And she said, <laughs> the president. And so through a lot of the suffering I would undergo as a young man, you know, I would experience, you know, dissatisfaction, discontentment. But I would say that those things helped give me direction because mm-hmm. I resolved within myself that I wanted to be somebody who could help make the world a better place, not just for myself and my family, but for everybody. And so I think the discovering of my purpose is what allowed me to stay focused and committed, you know, throughout all of the challenges and distractions that urban young people face. And there was a number of coaches and sports, and, you know, 
things that would, I think, take my focus off of a lot of the obstacles I had to, you know, overcome around me and show me better at a time that was really critical and crucial to the trajectory of my life. Hmm. Um, so I could not be here without a number of different key people. And I could not be here without the exposure to things outside of my inner city neighborhood or my, my household. Right. I love that story, you know, of, of your mom and just thinking far into the future and starting to have that vision of what you want your, your world to look like, Mm -hmm. even if it didn't look like that as you're walking down the street. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, so for people that are not from Rochester, like, like, like we are, and we come from different parts of Rochester, admittedly, you know, um, but <laughs> Avenue, Avenue D um, is where you came from. And, yeah. and so to me, like, that's like the, when you think about what is inner city Rochester, it's Avenue D. Yes, it I mean, is. Avenue D is where when you turn on the news, um, if it's yeah. on the news, you hear the reports of things happening yeah. on Avenue D. So it's, uh, so tell me a little bit about what that environment was like um so my parents aren't from the city right so Mm -hmm. there was this uh dual reality for me so my mom is from about an hour south a town called mount morris my dad from about an hour west a town called medina they come to rochester they meet and then here i am yeah and so for me i grew up in an environment that was clearly drug-ridden crime ridden, um, you know, the influence of gangs and just violence on young people. Um, I grew up around all of those influences, but I was fortunate enough that in my household, even though there was, you know, turmoil, like my dad was on drugs, my mom kind of dabbled in drugs, but she was predominantly an alcoholic. Um, My brother ended up getting taken away in foster care. My sister, um, you know, she got to a point where you know, her and my mom didn't see eye to eye and she would constantly go out and stay out for long periods of time to the point where one day she didn't come back because she ended up, you know, being kidnapped, <clears throat> but she left behind a young baby. Um, mm. There was like a, there was, there was like two influences. So even though I would say in the streets of Avenue D, I was being surrounded and coming in contact with, you know, typical inner city culture. In my household, my parents were trying to instill better even though they had their own struggles and those yeah. struggles were present, but it wasn't necessarily um, what I like to call, you know, the hood mentality. It wasn't in my household per se, because there is a mentality in the psychology that gets passed down from generation to generation that I think is oriented more so towards survival. Mm. Um, even though we were in that, that predicament, I, I I did not inherit that mindset in my household, and I'm grateful for that. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. I mean, there's there's living in it, and then there's thinking, you know, thinking the same way as what you see around you. And so I think mm-hmm. that's a, an extraordinary gift that your parents gave you, even mm-hmm. though they were going through their own stuff, to be able to give you that vision and that you were able to hold on to that. Right. Yeah. You know, even though I guess you can say there was a bit of a contradiction and Mm -hmm. I like to tell people now when I talk about my parents that, you know, even though my parents had their own challenges and they weren't the best parents to, you know, uh, an infant, you know, or a toddler um, or an adolescent, 
they've been a much better parent to a young adult. Um, mm. And so I really got to experience that when I came back from the Marine Corps. So that's, there's so much to your story, Adrian. I love it. <laughs> there's so much. I should write a book, huh? <laughs> yeah, you should, well, yeah, I think there is going to be one. I don't see how there couldn't be. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. So tell me more about you started off in this situation in your life where you had parents that were from, you know, people from not from here might not know what those towns are, but I think of those as pretty rural towns and a lot different looking than inner city Rochester. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, having that, those people, you know, parents from outside coming to the city and giving you that sort of bubble of a different mindset. And then, you know, I, I have to, you know, I, you, a lot of times when we've talked before, you give credit to everybody else. Um, and I love that because it does take a community of people to make somebody, but you also have that in you, you know, whether your parents gave that to you through DNA or however you got it, it's yours. And you have a way of looking at the world in such a positive light that, and you're able to share that with others. So, um, so you went from, um, growing up in that environment and then, choosing your path, really. I mean, this, this podcast is about choice and, and making decisions of what you want your life to look like and then creating that for yourself. And you're an amazing example of that. So what were some of the influences that you had or what were some of the things that happened to you along the way that made you think you wanted something different? I mean, you know, walking out and walking out of your house, you see something and you see but you see what's in front of you, which is very different where you talked about, you know, gangs and drugs and, and you're able to see beyond that. And you talked about, uh, you know, discovering your purpose. How early do you think you knew what your purpose was? So that's a really important question, but I, I have to tell you that I think for me, it wasn't necessarily wanting something different as much as I was compelled to, be the change and try to influence the change for um, a lot of people who were sharing my lived experience. And I would say that my introduction of faith, which happened at a very young age, I was introduced to religion and spirituality at a young age. And so I think for me, and and I want to talk about a little bit later, because um, what I'm starting to recognize now, even in my life, is that when I got older and was exposed to some of the social ills on a larger scale that expanded my thinking and understanding of some of the um, issues plaguing society, it's funny how a lot of the conversations that were being had at that, at that particular time of my life would help influence and inform my orientation towards service moving forward. Mm-hmm. But at a young age, I, you know, being introduced to God and like hearing, you know, certain stories about Jesus, because I am, a, I would consider myself a Christian, um, mm-hmm. which I don't, I don't subscribe to any particular religion as much as I subscribe to the idea of a relationship with God and a relationship mm-hmm. who I perceive to be my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when I'm hearing these stories about, you know, this figure that we call Jesus at a young age, it's beginning to, to help me understand you know, helping people and giving back. And so, you know, so already I'm, I'm kind of, you know, thinking that at home and now I'm going to church and Sunday school as a young kid and it's just being reinforced, you know? 
Right. So my mom, who when I was young was like extremely community oriented and progressive. Like my mom was that woman who all my friends would be at my house and she would feed us during the summer. And, you know, we would have like, you know, music and we would like party on weekends. So my mom too, you know, there was these moments of her instilling in me that whenever you move forward, it's essential that you leave behind yourself a path and a trail that others can follow. Mm. And so I think it's this combination of all of these experiences and factors that begin to inform and build this foundation of service and leadership for the purpose of making, you know, society better. But, but I wouldn't have a concrete hold on how to effectuate that until later. Yeah, because it seems like like really early on you had that sense of yeah, yeah, wanting to sure. help, wanting to help. You know, like you you knew that you knew what you how you wanted to live your life, and you wanted others to be able to have that same feeling. And I'll tell you this too: like I'm a firm believer that we undergo certain experiences because they're there to help us cultivate certain attributes and skill sets and abilities within us, mm-hmm. and so. You know, even at a, at a young age, so my mom and my father, there was like domestic violence in my house. My, my father was a, a, you know, a drug addict and alcoholic. And sometimes he would come home and be extremely violent. And I believe that the reason that, and I'm not, I'm not going to say that, you know, some of those experiences didn't affect me personally, because I, I believe that they did. But mm-hmm. I think for the most part, they had somewhat of an empowering impact because given this lens of being, you know, uh, a courageous leader who wanted to stand up in adverse situations. When I remember my dad would, you know, you, you know, get physical with my mom. I can remember defending my mom and trying to be the peacemaker at a young age. Right. Um, and even once getting in between one of the punches and my tooth, my front tooth coming out. Mm. Um, so I would say that the courage. So when I looked at my, how my brother, like as an adult now, when I think back and how my brother and sister, would be so afraid they would not even be able to like move. Whereas like somehow I had a, and I'm the baby, I would be able, I was like mm-hmm. empowered to act. I was unable to act and want to defend my mom and, you know, stop my dad and, you know, try to make peace. And so I think even at a young age, that courage, you know, the ability to act in the presence of fear mm-hmm. was already being cultivated for work I would do much later in life. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And you said it right there. I mean, you had siblings in the house, they were in the same situation and, and you can have people growing up in the exact same circumstances and people come out different. And I'm so glad you are who you are. (laughs) I had to tell you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So tell me a little bit about what else you do. How has your path turned um, since then? So I would say I would, I would, I would make it through, you know, uh, adolescence to 18 years old, graduate high school. Thank God. Um, <laughs> and I saw a movie, uh, when I was about 16 or 17 called Fahrenheit 9-11. Hmm. And I remember seeing in that movie, these young Marines getting recruited from communities that look similar to Rochester, places like Flint and Scranton, and Detroit. And then the movie would show images of these young men in the actual war in Iraq. Mm. 
And it was a combination of, you know, the trauma of combat and then the trauma of these families who had sacrificed their own young people for the country um, in, the, in that war, you know, Operation Iraqi Freedom. That has such a profound impact on me that I felt like, you know what? I remember thinking to myself, I couldn't even shed tears after that movie because I felt like I had never undergone anything to that extent that would warrant tears. When I saw the impact that war had on these other young men who were just a couple of years older than me and their family. And so I would run cross country and track, believe it or not, I would even do short track speed skating through high school. And I even got offered track scholarships to Alfred, which is a college um, up in here in the Finger Lakes region of upstate New York. Um, mm-hmm. And I had a lot of support in the, in the speed skating community and whatnot. And I was compelled to go and join the Marine Corps. And I, just about everybody that I knew was starkly against it um, and adamantly <laughs> against it. I would get phone calls from every coach, family, friend, uncle, aunt, I mean, you name it, telling me not to join the Marine Corps of all branches. But mm-hmm. I literally felt compelled to join the Marine Corps. And I think it was this idea of being a part of something larger than myself and serving my country that, that, and ultimately, you know, doing my part at the time. And I felt like if I didn't do my part, I don't know if I would ever would be able to forgive myself. And so literally two weeks after high school, I would join the U.S. Marine Corps. And this was the summer of 2007. So I would go away from boot camp. I'd get stationed at my first um, duty station and then randomly one day, I got orders to Kaneohe Bay, Hawaii, but with those orders also came me being slated to go to Afghanistan in the summer of 2009. And Mm. for the Marine Corps, I would experience so many things, but ultimately I think the Marine Corps was the breeding ground for me to really understand leadership and courage and responsibility and accountability. And it would ultimately, I think, set me up to no longer, if I ever had, or if I ever would, allow fear to be a determining factor in my decision-making process. Because I was Mm. terrified to join the Marine Corps, and I was even more (laughs) terrified of going to Afghanistan. Um, And you did them both. (laughs) did them both, and I'm I'm much, much better off for it, I think. Yeah, I think a lot of people would have seen that movie and thought, I'm never going to do that. It's too, you know, it's too much of a sacrifice or it's too much of a, it's too scary. And it had the opposite reaction for you. No. And and so going back to even my childhood, I really believe like this lens of purpose, because like to your point, two people can be in the same situation, but based on the way they perceive it and see it have totally different experiences. Exactly. And so, you know, even though I'm sure uh, when director Michael Moore, who I have an enormous and tremendous respect and appreciation for, I'm sure he made that movie to deter people from wanting to probably join the military and mm-hmm. show them the hardship of, um, you know, military service. Yeah. But for me, it was totally different because I, the, the truth is, and I will learn this more because, you know, my experiences in combat and I, and I would see, you know, U.S action and operations up front, you know, up close and personal, um, both nation building and combat ops. And I think my understanding of the world and how the world works 
expanded so much during my time in the service. And mm. it began to produce these questions in me, you know, you know, why are we like we would be feeding, um, you know, Afghan people and carrying ballots and ensuring that they could vote. And we will be building infrastructure. And, you know, here I am, this little boy from the 14621 zip code in Rochester, New York, in upstate New York from the Rust Belt. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. why my country, you know, so committed to the uplift of people on the other side of the world when I'd never seen my own government, you know, take that level of action to ensure that same level of uplift um, for, yeah. for me and people who share my experience in America. Um, mm -hmm. And I saw the power of the federal, you know, there were some missions that were planned and canceled, planned and canceled, you know, waiting on Secretary of Defense or waiting on President Obama. Okay, you know, um, and, I, and I saw the power of Congress in the military, you know, that certain things in, in the military take an act of Congress to accomplish. And I think that's when when politics really began to emerge as a place where change could occur because mm. decision making power rested there. Um, right. So now I'm starting to understand, you know, how do I want to be an effectuator and an actualizer of, of the change that I was that I was committed to seeing as a young man? Yeah, so you went right from high school, graduating high school, two weeks later, yeah. joining the Marines and having that experience. How long were you in the Marines? So I was a United States, well, I'm always a Marine, but I was serving. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I was serving actively from the summer of 2007 to the spring of 2012. Okay, so that was. Oh, about five years. About five Five years. So, so you, you did five years in the Marines and you had a couple of, you know, combat situations that you were in and then, or deployments. And then you did what after that? So the reintegration process for a veteran is a mm. super challenge. Um, let me just start yeah. off there. Um, yeah. I'd like to hear about that. Cause that's, <laughs> <laughs> there is a reason why so the many different world. Oh my God, yes. Mm. Um, and there's a reason why so many veterans struggle with that process of reintegrating yeah. into um, civilian society. And, you know, you know, use drugs or become alcoholics or become homeless because, so I just want to outline and enumerate some of those variables, Please. factors. Yeah. So the first part is, um, so there's a saying we have in the Marine Corps that we say USMC doesn't stand for United States Marine Corps, it stands for Uncle Sam's Misguided Children, right? <laughs> and and that's mm. just our acknowledgement that a lot of us come from pretty challenging backgrounds. Yeah. So when you join a branch like the Marine Corps, the bond that you build with your fellow brothers and sisters and all is more than you could ever even imagine from family. Mm. The strength of that bond. So when you leave active duty, and you're away from these guys that you spend every moment of the day with for yeah. years, who know everything about you, who you trust with your life, who are there for you in ways no one has probably ever been there for you. That is traumatic in and of itself, just that separation. Um, then I had came back to Rochester 
And it felt like in so many ways, I have been all over the world. So I did these two combat deployments. I was stationed in Hawaii. I did the largest, I was a part of the largest naval exercise in the world, the Rim of the Pacific in 2010, in between deployments, you know, seeing so much of the world, so much of this country. And now I was mm. back in Rochester that felt like it had not changed at all since I left. <laughs> and likely it hadn't. <laughs> And in addition to that, my family hadn't changed much since I had left. And so that was traumatic. A lot of my friends now were perpetuating some of the situations and conditions we'd grown up in. So some of them had become young parents. I, you know, catch up and some of them were working dead-end jobs. They didn't have a lot of, you know, ambition or drive for their lives. And that hurt me. Um, Just kind of seeing how now they were going to become an extension of some of the struggles and challenges they'd grown up in. Um, so that was hurtful. Then I was dealing with my sexuality because when I was in the Marine Corps, um, my second deployment, you know, I started to deal with my sexuality and more intimately because I say combat gives you a lot of reflection time. Mm-hmm. Um, and cause you're cut off from the world. Um, and it's just you, your thoughts, your, your, your innermost emotions. And so when I had come back from Afghanistan, I started to finally begin the process of accepting, you know, who I was. Um, and so add that to it. And then it was the idea of what do you do now, you know? And yeah. so my family um, and my friends and, and people who I love kind of really coalesced around me because. You know, all of that on little 23-year-old Adrian was a lot. And I started to drink a lot, started to go out a lot. Um, and I feel like for that period of time, for the adults, for that period of time, um, I was a ship with no sail. Hmm. What changed then um, from that point to now that you were, I mean, that sounds like an incredible culture shift. Mm-hmm. In- back and forth, right? So you're, you go from Rochester to paradise in Hawaii to (laughs) active combat to back here, you know, which maybe sometimes might feel like combat, um, even just being here, but a different, a different one where nobody knows what they're fighting for, what they're fighting about, you know, um, just a, a different, a different situation that you're back in again, that is different, but it's familiar, you know, it's what you've, I, I, you've said before, you're not trying, you weren't trying to escape it, but trying to change maybe the choices that people, that you had, that people, other people might have. How did you transition from that? Like, what were the influences you had that got you from, you know, maybe drinking too much or partying too much and um, just trying to deal with that, the feelings of everything not what you maybe want it to be in that moment and not maybe, I don't know, did you feel like you were kind of, you didn't know how to get where you wanted to be or get back to that feeling that you had before or what, tell me a little bit about that. What was going on in Adrian Hale's head? So my family, who I'm eternally grateful for, I, I saw a side of them I hadn't really seen before because they were really there, super supportive. And they mm. showed a level of concern because, you know, I think for them it was like, you know, here's Adrian with all this promise, like it's spiraling out of control. And so I remember thinking to myself in about August of that, um, in that time. So I got out of the Marine Corps, February, March of 12, and I kind of spiral out. 
Um, then around August, I remember thinking, you know, remember who you are, man. You know, mm. and I, I re-enlisted in the Air Force Reserve because I knew I needed some accountability and some structure. Um, and so when you were in the military, even the reserves, you know, once a month you need to be out in a, you know, you need to show up for duty, you need to have your hair cut, yep. you know, <laughs> you want to stay out of trouble. Um, you know, you don't want to hit, you know, you don't want your command, you know, you don't want to get in trouble and then your command find out something. So I re-enlisted right. in the Air Force Reserve to give myself structure and accountability. And I enrolled in Monroe Community College, which is a, is a very prominent community college in our community, as you know. And mm-hmm. I stopped going out. I stopped drinking for a period of time. And I said, you know, remember who you are now and focus now on, you know, this. Like you were so pumped to go to college when you were in Afghanistan reading these books by, you know, prolific thinkers like, um, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson and um, Henry David Thoreau and Dr. Mm. King, Frederick Douglass and Harriet Beecher Stowe and, you know, people that I, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois and I, and I read all these books and you are passionate. Um, so now go to, go to college. And so I was enrolled in D.C. in the fall of 2012 and I was in the Air Force Reserve. And that was the beginning of, of what I would say is the path to bring me here. Um, I would go to MCC and get all the support from, you know, the administration of the college, you know, Dr. Ann Kress and, you know, a lot of my professors would su- be supportive of me. And um, I would give a speech there for 9-11 day because I would get involved as a student leader and student government and be elected the speaker of the Senate and, you know, participate on, you know, the MCC Association Board of Directors and get, you know, the SUNY Chancellor's Award and just really, you know, maintain a 4.0, just really take advantage of being in school and being passionate and, and wanting to learn and being curious. And, and so I would give this speech on 9-11 day, 2013. Mm-hmm. And that would be the day where, I mean, that night, I, 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 and I'm not exaggerating, but I, I think I was literally on every news channel that night. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, and I, and from there, I would just continue to be asked to speak for the MCC Foundation to help raise money for scholarships. Nice. And it would allow me to meet people. One of those people would be Lieutenant Governor Duffy at the time, who would become mm. a, a great mentor and a powerful influence. And uh, the rest is history. But MCC in so many ways would be the springboard to where I am now. One speech. Literally, I, you know, it was that one speech that I think allowed me the kinds of opportunities and access that will make it so that I could be, you know, on here with you right now. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I th- I've I've heard some of I've I've watched some videos and seen you speak, and you are a powerful speaker. Oh, so I could see how that, that's just a natural thing for you. I don't, I didn't, did you go to school for speaking? I don't, I don't know. Like you really, you're very good at it. And I think it's, uh, you know, y- your message is going to go far because you're able to express it so eloquently. So thank you so much. I think, um, yeah. I'll tell you this. I, I took a public speaking course when I was an MCC student. Um, but I, I'll tell you this. I believe the ability to communicate is so important Mm -hmm. because if you look throughout history, people have always coalesced and rallied around a message. 
and leaders who provide um, a vision of the possibilities of what can be if people learn how to work together and, you know, coordinate their efforts in a common direction to accomplish a common goal and objective. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's, this is the one skill that I constantly want to improve on because I feel like it's essential in the accomplishment of my mission in life, the ability to speak from the heart and corroborate people's realities, their stories, their hopes, their dreams, their challenges, um, and really tap into a place, an intimate place, where I think you can stimulate hope, faith, and encourage, because with those three things, it will empower you to persevere, never give up, try, believe in yourself, you know, and the, and the list goes on. But, but I think those three, three things, and of course, love, right? But I, I believe that hope, hope, faith, and courage are essential. Good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. You know, I, you know I, let me just say this. I know, you know, I'm 29 years old, right? And so... I feel like when you've undergone so much, it forces you to have to question yourself, people, our world, reality, God. And so it produces a perspective and an understanding that I'm able to share with you now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, so literally, I'm sharing with you. Um, the the 2018 29 year old version of adrian hale's understanding of who he is and and my relationship with the world and my relationship with this thing that i i perceive as purpose um and and how that connects me to the world and other people in a very unique way so Hmm. absolutely so with um so you went to mcc and you had that that opportunity to be on tv with your your speech and what did you do from there um so you know i was invited to a number of other mcc foundation events and i got to meet people like bob and so towards the end of my time at mcc um i had a number of i had a number of you know role models and mentors who would say, you know, Adrian, you need to apply high. Because um, hmm. at the time, I wanted to attend a school called St. John Fisher here. Um, I met one of the vice presidents there, and he was really nice, and he was like, you need to come to St. John Fisher. And so I, my goal was like to go to St. John Fisher, stay present, and continue. Good to school. Community. <laughs> yep. And I wanted to do work in our community. Um, but I had some mentors who were like, you know, you need to apply high. And so, and when they said hi, they meant, you know, um, really nationally, globally recognized institutions. So the Harvards, the Yale, the University of Pennsylvania, the Amherst, mm-hmm. the Cornells, you know, um, institutions of that stature. And so I applied to all of those schools and began to get the letters back. And I had follow-up interviews. And so I would, you know, get a phone call from Yale. and uh, they would say, you know, hey, can you make it down here on this date to do an in-person interview? If you can, it's okay. We can do it on the phone. And my mentor, uh, one of the vice presidents from GC, he said, you better go. <laughs> like, <"Hey, laughs> yeah. you, you better go. I don't care if you, calls, you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't care if you hitchhike, you better go, right? And so yeah. 
um, I ended up driving up to Yale. And when I got there, I was somewhat taken aback because, um, you know, you hear about schools like Yale and presidents go there and senators and congresspersons and, you know, some of Hollywood's most elite actors and actresses like Meryl Streep and Angela Bassett and all these, you know, all these people are Yaleys. Um, Paul, mm. uh, Paul Giamatti, you know, his father was the president of just the legacy of Yale, right? Yeah. And so I show up and I see that Yale is in downtown New Haven. And I see that New Haven is a city a lot like Rochester. Hmm. And it opened my eyes. And so I get there and I'll be transparent with you. <laughs> I show up to admissions, which is this beautiful house. I want to say on Hill House Avenue, um, which is like the main street of Yale campus. Cause like the president's house is there and all that. It goes to Science Hill. And, you know, a lot of prominent, um, you know, buildings are on Hill House. So um, I get there and I'm like, have to, you know, I had to walk around one more time. <laughs> like, just, I was so nervous, you know, mm. like, oh, this is Yale and wow, you know, just the building was so beautiful. It was intimidating. So I finally walk yeah. in and I meet, you know, Deborah Johns and Patricia Way at admissions and I sit down and I interview with them. First of all, Yale makes me feel so much at home. Second of all, I begin to, you know, engage in this dialogue and conversation with them about purpose and why I believe going to Yale would uniquely equip me to be that much more of an effective leader in the world. Mm. And they reciprocate to me this understanding of not just my purpose and my objectives in life, but my experiences, you know, they see it every day. And Yale every day is confronted with this challenge of how can we be more impactful in New Haven? How can we be more inclusive and how can we break down the barriers where so many people who live right here in you know, close proximity to one of the most elite institutions mm -hmm. in the world, but can't access it through any way other than maybe being um, a groundskeeper or, you know, mm -hmm. you know, cafeteria staff or, you know? Right. Um, yeah. And so they share my vision and my passion. And I knew, I knew, I don't care where I get into, I'm coming here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I knew. And so um, one day, because I was taking summer courses, finishing up at MCC, and I got uh, an email from either Patricia Ware or Deb Johns. And you know how sometimes when you get an email, you can already start to see the message? Yeah. I had already seen congratulations. <laughs> and you want to talk about somebody who was pumped but the mm. way I shared it with my family <laughs> is I said you know I got this email from Yale I can't open it up so open it up tell you what it says <laughs> <laughs> you already knew <laughs> you knew but I wanted them to feel that same you know yeah and so when they would open it up they would just be like oh my god you got it yet you know and so yeah. we were like super pumped, super <laughs> excited, and uh, and yeah, so I would go to Yale, and the rest is history, man. They would be just as supportive and just as encouraging, and um, man, I would meet, you know, I would be taught by some of them all. So, and we can talk about this, you know, in a second, but 
the thing about Yale that just blew my mind is you are literally being taught by some of the leading experts in the world. Hmm. Um, I learned, you know, constitutional law from a, a gentleman named Akil Amar, who, if Hillary Clinton was elected president, very much would probably be, you know, a Supreme Court um, nominee. Hmm. I learned political science from Jacob Hacker, who helped consult with Ed Miliband and his campaign to be um, prime minister against David Cameron in the United Kingdom. And it will probably also would be working um, uh, in the White House or in the federal um, government if Hillary Clinton had been elected president. Um, mm. uh, Doug Ray, who taught, you know, prominent senators like Cory Booker um, and who would take me under his wing and would oversee my um, senior thesis and, you know, would be, um, you know, in the first administration of the first black mayor in New Haven history. Um, back in the early 90s, around the time where, you know, black mayors started getting elected across the city, thanks to Harold Washington's glass-breaking, you know, glass-ceiling-shattering victory in Chicago. You know, mm. so I was, you know, in the midst of these great minds. And in addition to that, you are surrounded by young people who have been the products of some of the most elite educations in the world, who've gone to the best boarding schools, and private schools, and public schools you know, yeah. parochial schools. And so you are constantly in the presence of um, intellectualism. And so what I think I took away from Yale was the ability to think better and sharper and stronger and produce a higher quality of thought, original thought, mm. um, mm-hmm. and then the ability to critically think. Um, and, and that, I think, is the greatest set of skills that I, I took away from Yale. You know, and I, I became a systems thinker and a solution-oriented thinker. Um, all, all great, um, great uh, skills and attributes I took away from Yale that I find serve me well in my role now. Tell me about your role now, because uh, you are a systems thinker, and I, I try to be but I'm not quite there all the time. I'm more like I can look at a, a system and see how the individual might, um, you know, at a, an individual level is maybe where I see more clearly than the whole entire system. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when you, I mean, a smaller system, yes, I can handle that. But when you start talking government and local government or state or national government or just world, you know, just looking at, you, I think you are that big thinker that can look at those things and see how to improve them so that not just one by one we can get better, but as a community. Mm-hmm. So how are you doing that right now? I, I know you're doing some great stuff. <laughs> yeah. So um, for me, I, I, like I said, I will meet Lieutenant Governor Duffy towards that transition from MCC to Yale, and he would take me under his wing as well. And as a Yale student, I would come home, you know, at some part of the summers, and I would work for Bob uh, at the Greater Rochester Chamber of Commerce. And so Bob would open literally every door for me. But I have to tell this funny story. Uh, Bob would give a speech. This was like the beginning of my first summer, summer of 2015. Mm-hmm. And I would come back and he would take me to one of his speeches and he would say, you know, mind you, I'm just there with him. So I don't plan on speaking or anything. Right. So he would say, you know, <laughs> there's a young man I want you all to meet. He's going to be a leader one day. And, you know, he's, you know, interning with us, but he's our summer associate. And, you know, he's supposed to learn from us, we learn from him. 
uh, you know, I want you to hear from Adrian Hale. He said, I, like, my drum sitting in the crowd, everybody else, Adrian, get up here. <laughs> right? Nice. Adrian, get up. And so I would come on stage, and Bob would, um, you know, walk over to the side, and I would take the microphone. I would just begin to give this soliloquy um, on, you know, being a native Rochesterian and, uh, you know, perceiving that as we are a people who are the, the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony and mm-hmm. how shame and embarrassed they would be if they would see, could see the current conditions of our city. And we have an obligation and responsibility, not just to ourselves, but to this nation, because mm-hmm. we are the heirs of two people whose history has shaped American history. And I just begin to go on about this. Um, and so I think that was when he saw, okay, I know what I want to do with this kid. <laughs> so he would bring me back in 2016, and he would bring me back full time in 2017 because I would graduate Yale in 2016. In December, I would start here in January of 2017, and I started off as strategic initiative. And so, what I kind of did then is find the lanes that I could be most um, productive and impactful in, and they were economic development, workforce development, and education. And so, I got promoted again to senior manager of workforce economic development education initiative now. And so what I do in addition to workforce development, which is like upskilling, reskilling, you know, laborers in our workforce to meet the needs of employers, because as you know, there's a number of skill gaps between where employers need, you know, workers to be and where a lot of our workers are. Um, and there's reasons for that. You know, mm-hmm. our largest school district graduates its um, gradual graduates, um, illiterate and numerate, largely speaking. Um, the last statistic I yeah. saw, they graduate current college ready at 6%. And wow. so, um, and then we have, you know, surrounding uh, school districts, the rubber school districts, who um, some of them do a very good job of, you know, preparing his kids and graduating them with agency and literacy and numeracy, but not the best um, social skills um, or the ability to really cope and interact in this, in, you know, American society. Hmm. or with the strongest soft skills. And then you have some suburban districts that might do better on exams, but don't graduate kids career college ready much better than the city schools. Um, Hmm. And so I think in Rochester, some of our K-12 pipeline um, is in the need of um, reform. The city, because it graduates the largest amount of kids, is probably the greatest, but there are some suburban districts that also are facing challenges, some undergoing diversity, and so they were traditionally, you know, structured to cater to, um, you know, white middle class uh, youth. And now you have, you know, some young people who share, you know, diverse backgrounds and have a number of different experiences at home and family mm-hmm. structures. And so some of those districts have to adapt in order to service their new student population as well as they service a student population in the past. Right. Um, and then you have some districts who are still predominantly white, but because of things like um, the drug epidemic that you're seeing now if impacts suburban and rural America, um, yeah. they have high A scores, which is the average childhood experience uh, scale. They have high A scores, high pov- increasing poverty rates, um, and you know just government intervention. So whether that's government assistance or child protective services. So now you have even predominantly white suburban districts who have some similar challenges to the inner city. So 
Rochester overall is undergoing a number of challenges. We've lost our three largest employers. And so and when, you, when I speak about economic development now, what are the kinds of changes and reforms we need to put in place at a systems level, whether that's municipal, so talking about you know Monroe County, which is the county that Rochester's in, or the city of Rochester, and how our public institutions work, whether that's our criminal justice system, because there's a correlation between increasing rates of crime with increasing rates of poverty, which is a byproduct of limited opportunities and work opportunities. Um, mm. and, so, and, and then so how do we have more of a restorative criminal justice system versus a punitive system, which could disqualify people for engagement and participation in the workforce? Um, in addition to that, how do we rebuild our economy? So what kind of edifices, apparatuses do we need to you know, set up so that people can be entrepreneurs and start businesses and have a thriving solopreneur economy? Well, what kind of resources and amenities do we need to provide, um, whether it's incubators or accelerators, um, to give people the kinds of skills and acumen they need to be successful business owners? And, oh, by the way, what does our municipal tax climate need to look like to ensure <laughs> that the conditions are favorable so that we, we make incentives for folks to sure. go into um, business? And then how do we also create the kind of you know, talent pipeline where we connect entry-level jobs to other jobs so that we can leverage transferable skills so that people are constantly moving up on the economic ladder um, toward gainful employment so that the incentives for work exist so that mm -hmm. an entry-level job doesn't become a dead-end job. And that's the whole talent management or workforce management piece. Um, so informing the process, you know, the quality of our housing stock and, and how do we create the kinds of fire or flame in Rochester that can attract growth, that can attract businesses who are looking to expand or relocate to our region. Um, traditionally, I would say that the economic development um, approach has been somewhat flawed because I believe now in my role that our perception and understanding of our problems uh, is misplaced. And so it has created, you know, solutions and ideas of solutions that haven't addressed our issue because our understanding and location of the issue is wrong. And so now with my unique experience, because I have a much broader perspective of the problem coming from the most challenged you know, uh, stratas, you know, in, in uh, greater Rochester society now to some of the most prominent. And right. so I like, to, I like to articulate that as if, if you're looking at the picture of society, some of us literally have only seen one part of the picture. Sure. Because of my experiences, I've seen a lot more of the picture, not all mm. of it, right, but a lot more of it. And so yeah. my understanding, I think, is, 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 uh, is deeper. And so it allows me to uniquely contribute to these conversations in a way that a lot of folks can't. Absolutely. So that's kind of what I'm doing now. So what is it that, um, how do you see your understanding being different and how do you communicate that and help other people to share that vision with you or that different perspective? So let me just give you one example and, I, and I'm going to build on an example I used earlier. So when I talked about how in the absence 
and in the void of work ex- opportunities and just opportunity in general in a rust belt city like rochester you see a correlating increase in crime which also leads to a correlating increase in conviction convictions that could potentially um uh detract or disable folks from participating in work um mm-hmm. or becoming gainfully employed so when i talk about a restorative criminal justice approach versus a punitive criminal justice approach that says that our 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 uh, our understanding and our perception of this problem doesn't penalize the individual because we see the individual as a product of an operative system okay hmm. their k12 system if right. they had a high poverty household predominantly in rochester the dem- the, the largest demographic of poverty is a you know hispanic or black female head of household. So if that's their reality, then it says that there was some government intervention, whether that was CPS, whether that was social services, you know, whether you can access SNAP programs or HEAP or, you know, rental assistance or cash assistance, right? Um, Whether Mm -hmm. it was that, which would influence and impact decisions that were made in the household. Um, That also goes into Bowen and his family systems theory. we look at the individual as a product of an operative systems and institutions that serve this individual and their family. So the way I look at it is we need to ensure that our systems function in a interventionist way that could potentially address the real issue, which could be mental health, which could be, you know, the absence of opportunity. Um, or just the ignorance of the availability of opportunities, mm-hmm. because ultimately we want to see this individual as a contributing member of society, right? Not a dependent member of society that is either disincentivized to participate because of any number of reasons, maybe high child support debt that you incur while you are in prison. And now you don't really want to work because when you make wages, they're garnished because you have to pay child support back. So it incentivizes you to work that way. Maybe you're receiving ESS or uh, right. And and you don't want to work because you're on the system. And if you make too much money on the system, you lose the benefits, but literally you need the benefits. Make a dollar too much. And it's, you know, like, oh, you don't need us anymore. Right. Right. And now it's like, well, why don't I just stay on the system? Because I have to put in all this effort and energy to a dead end in a dead end job to barely make it where I'm on a system now and I might cut hair on the side of the table and I'm doing better or okay. Right. Um, so right. that's incentivized participation. So it's just, it's just, we want to see, I think the, so it's helping economic developers and workforce developers and government officials and business leaders conceptualize challenges differently to ultimately impact their decisions and their actions of what kinds of approaches we should take at addressing these problems. Mm. Ultimately, to summarize that, we want to incentivize poor people with challenges to make better decisions and reward those decisions versus punishing poor people who confront challenges for making bad decisions. Right. And then mm. that, that, that will snowball into more bad decisions. And then ultimately, 
adversely impact society as a whole. Right. Yeah. I mean, right now in a, in a roundabout way, I guess it's the system incentivizes people to stay poor yeah. because that's when you can get the money, right? I mean, that's where, that's when you can get um, benefits. And once you start working, which is what we all kind of, you know, it's supposed to be, what is the welfare to work program? Is that what they call it? Yeah. Um, but, but which, which really just keeps you on welfare. But think about it. And you're right. And, but, but think about this for a second. So let's say you took an individual. So let's say hypothetically, I want to speak on a municipal level. I want to speak, you know, federally or whatever, but I want to speak on a municipal level. Mm-hmm. So let's say um, you were the mayor or the county executive and you help administer, um, you know, SNAP and cash assistance, which are state programs that come through block grants from health and human services from the federal government. Right. So Those are like food, is SNAP, like food stamps? Food is that? Stamps, yep. And cash assistance okay. can be, yeah. you know, rent subsidies or right. Got it. cash, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say even, and so the government recognizes that, you know, in Rochester, to have a pretty decent living, you should be making around, um, and this could be altered based on family size. But let's say mm-hmm. for, you know, a young couple with a young child, um, and, and I just want to throw this disclaimer out there. That can also be social engineering because, you know, the government is saying, you know, if you have a one, two parents with one child, who are they to say, you know, incentivize one family structure over the other. So I'm not saying that. I'm just saying right. it should be based on the family structure and family size. Mm-hmm. But let's say, you know, you have a young couple with a baby and, you you know, the government was to determine, you know, they need about $70,000 in Rochester to be, you know, okay, right? Yeah. And both of them want to work, but let's say they worked at, one of them worked at McDonald's, the other one worked at Walmart, hypothetically, right? And they made, let's say, annual salary, if they work most of the time, they probably bring in between, you know, thirty, $35,000 a year. Together, they make about $70,000. Um, but after taxes, it might act effectually be less there. I would be in favor, right. instead of having, you know, welfare programs that penalize people, you know, and, and doesn't qualify them for benefits. If you did maybe a turn welfare to a negative income tax credit where you recognize, you know, maybe after taxes, they're not making enough. So we're going to subsidize both of their salaries so that they don't have to pay these taxes. You know, by the way, they get a little bit of a credit to make sure that they're doing okay and that they can mm-hmm. continue to want to work and progress to a point where they get to so where I don't need to work now and I can't pay taxes because I can literally afford to now give back to society. But when you take a lot of people who grow up in households that are deeply impoverished and they inherit nothing, whereas you have other families where, you know, kids are inheriting houses, they get a car for graduating high school, they get college mm-hmm. subsidized by their parents. Like, how do you ever expect those people to become contribute, genuinely contributing members of society? I just right. don't think it works. And I, I think, you know, the axiomatic evidence that we've seen over time is you have to give people a reason to strive. Um, you got to mm-hmm. give folks, you got to reward folks in their effort. And I don't think we have a system right now structured to do that. You know, and then, you know, obviously with, with new tax bills and whatnot, you got, you know, some of the wealthiest people in the country paying a, sh- a smaller share of taxes than some of the poorest, most vulnerable people in mm-hmm. the country. And, and that doesn't lead people to want to, that, that doesn't help. You know, you got first generation college yeah. graduates 
who are struggling under the debt of that college education. And, you know, they might have come from a family where they got nothing, no help from their parents. Matter of fact, some of them have to help their parents and their families, and little brothers, little sisters. And then you wonder why they just one day throw up their hands and say, that's it, you know? So I think we have to think more intentionally and strategically on how we design systems and what will the externalities and consequences and outcomes of the operation of those systems be, and if they're positive or negative on individuals. Because Mm -hmm. you can't divorce an individual from the systems and institutions that impacted who they are and where they are in life. Right. Yeah. One, one feeds the other, right? They go back and forth. Absolutely right. Well, I'm grateful to you for being out there and thinking about these things and getting in front of other people to help other people think differently. Um, That's an amazing gift. I think that Adrian Hale is for the world. (laughs) Ah, Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Definitely our own backyard first, you know. Yeah, it's got to start with something, right? I mean, it's when you think about the whole world needs help right now, but we can all do our share right where we are and look around and see what we can do better and do that. Right. So I think you're definitely doing that. Right. I wanted to go back a little bit. Um, You talked about coming to a point where you completely accepted who you are. Mm -hmm. So I, I love that because... So many people have this idea that they should be a certain, a certain way, think a certain way, be a certain way, and are afraid to go outside of that or to share who they really are with the world. Right. So it seems like your story is not like that. You've, you know, you've had this history of just being Adrian Hale. You know, you've got this, you just, you just are who you are. It doesn't matter what's going on around you. Mm. You are true to yourself. Mm-hmm. And you talked about it specifically in the area of sexuality and coming to terms with, I don't know if coming to terms is the right term for that. I don't know how to say that, but like just accepting that completely and right. being who you are. Right. So I'd love you to just talk about that a little bit and how yeah. that just all of it, you know, like just yeah. how are you just you yeah. authentically you all the time? First off, I just appreciate you for saying that. Um, that means a lot because it's not always easy to, you know, especially when people assume that you're not, you know, or they draw their own conclusions and you might have to inform them. And that's not always an easy thing to do. But I, I but the, the, the pragmatic answer would be I met a kid in the summer of 2012 and um, he was a, a young gay man as well, but he, you couldn't really tell that he was a young gay man. And when I say that, I mean, he didn't fit, like, I guess you can say typical stereotypes of what you think a gay man would present themselves like. Mm-hmm. And so I remember, you know, going over to his house and meeting his family and like, just, you know, hanging out with him. And when I saw how his family was towards him, because at this time, my family didn't even really know. Like at the time, I was wondering if I was bisexual because I had long-lasting relationships with women. And, mm-hmm. and I was never inauthentic in those relationships. And I'm still really close to those, those young ladies to this day. So at the time, I'm like, you know, maybe I'm bisexual or whatever. And then when I went to his house and met his family and just seeing how his family was just so accepting and embracing it, he was a young black male too. Mm-hmm. Literally, 
that day, I went home and I told my dad first, oh, I'm gay. Then I told my mom, I'm gay. Mm. And I literally, because I just had, to, I think I just had to see what it, what, what would it look like? And, I, yeah. I, and so I would say from a pragmatic perspective, that was like the, the event that occurred. But mm. also I felt like as a person who believes in courage, I think courage enabled me then to, you know, live my truth outwardly in other places. Um, and the more people were accepting and the more people were just like, oh, okay. Um, the, the more encouragement I got. And of course, I met some people who once they knew that I got a different reaction from them. And that's going to happen from time to time. But I literally believe that, you know, because I think that self-advocacy is important. And when I say that, I mean, like, mm-hmm. when certain demographics of people stand up for their rights. So, like, for you, if you were to stand up for women's rights, or if I were to stand up for Black, you know, civil rights, or LGBT civil rights, or whatnot. Um, I believe that the transcendence of that is when we recognize that I don't have to be a woman to stand shoulder to shoulder with you and hook arms with you and stand up for women's rights. And you don't have to be a member of the LGBTQ community or the African-American community to stand shoulder to shoulder or lock arms with me to stand up for my rights because you recognize that until we live in a society where we learn to value everyone, right? Mm-hmm. And until we live in a society where we learn to value everyone's rights, anyone's rights will be at risk at any given time. Absolutely. And so... I know that I uniquely embody this identity. It is funny that you say that because I feel like in one hand, you have this, um, you know, a kid who grew up poor from the inner city of America, who's, you know, black American and who's also gay. But then you, you know, you intersect that with this, I guess you could say this resume identity of, you know, a Marine and an airman and a combat veteran and an Ivy League educated man. And so, whereas one identity makes me extremely vulnerable, right? The other Hmm. makes me privileged at the same time. And so, I recognize that every time I move up and I disarm and, and, um, you know, disrupt and arrest people's you know, mental models of what a black gay guy from the hood should be. <laughs> Everybody else who shares my identity or even other identities that are just as historically underserved or marginalized, they also move forward with me. And that's why it's so, so, so important for me to be myself. Because what I'm really <laughs> doing, I think, um, which is probably a byproduct of, of my purpose, it's freeing other people to be themselves. And I want to just throw this caveat in there, and this is going to probably going to be so controversial, but I have to say it because I think there's <laughs> some truth here. One of, say it. Because <laughs> I know a lot of people criticize a rapper named Cardi B, and clearly a lot of people criticize the president, both of which who are very controversial in the way they choose to behave, the things they choose to say, and the way they act. But what I mm. do like about, what I do think will be a, outcome or byproduct of their behavior is it will begin to um, dislodge and just totally deconstruct 
these mental preconceived ideas of what a president should be and what a celebrity should be. And I think actually expand the reach and access to other people who might feel like, well, I can never be that because I did this in my past, or I could never be that because I used to be that, right? Like Cardi B used to be a stripper and Donald Trump, um, obviously he has a long history of, you know, fraud and discrimination and, you know, sexism and um, being chauvinistic, right? So, but, and I'm not saying we should elevate people who outwardly, you know, want to be bad people, but I want to live in a redemptive society. Whereas maybe in mm. someone's past, they did make some serious mistakes, but it didn't limit what they could be in their future. Um, and those are, I think we're going to see some, even Kim Kardashian, you know, here she is sitting over this multi-million dollar empire, this woman whose career started off with a sex tape. I just, mm. I, I want us to get to a point in America where we can stop being fake. You know, because think about the impact that has on so many lesbians or so many transgender or so many LGBT or so many women or so many poor Hispanics or poor blacks or poor Asians or um, people or poor in general, you know, poor white people who grew up in the little town in the shadow of an old factory where no one ever becomes anything and no one ever leaves. Hmm. And, and, and how I don't fit the, the dominant narrative. I don't fit the historical narrative. So I can never be. I'm all about shattering the idea of that. So that's why it's important for me to, to be myself, my, my true self, as much of the time as possible. I love it, Adrian. That's great. <laughs> Thank you. There's only one of each of us. Yeah. And I think if all of us were just our best selves, then our world would be amazing. It already is amazing, but imagine how much greater it could be if we were all just ourselves and making that choice every day to not worry about what anything, you know, what anybody else thinks or what anybody else is doing, but that we're doing the next right thing in our own lives right. and being the best person we can be. Right. Yep. That's all we can be. You know, the saying is, uh, just be you. Everybody else is taken. <laughs> yeah. I just read that today. I forget who the quote was. Yeah. I just saw that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> a good one. And so if we, if we believe that, then we have to set up a world where, um, I'm not saying necessarily Stormy Daniels, right? But um, if Stormy Daniels wanted to be a senator one day because she cares about her community and cares about her country, she should be able to, and her past occupation shouldn't impact us. You know, that's right. the world I want to live in, you know, where no one's mistakes is so great or no one's identity is so shunned that it limits who they can be and what they can accomplish, you know. I think the biggest limitation for people is that idea for themselves. Yeah. Thinking I, I did this before, so or this is where where I came from, so these are my choices and not even seeing that there's so much more. That's right. And that you can choose something every moment. It doesn't matter what I did or I thought or I said ten years ago or five years ago or five minutes ago. It's what I'm doing right now and what I choose to do next. Right. That's absolutely right. 
Adrian, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It was really wonderful talking to you. I hope maybe we can talk again in the future yeah. on a future episode. And I'm excited to see what you're going to, what you're going to do with, I mean, you're 29, you're young, you've got a lot of time ahead of you, a lot of great things. I think your mom um, might've been foreshadowing something, or maybe you were for yourself <laughs> saying maybe someday you'll be president, right? <laughs> um. <laughs> I could, I could see Adrian Hale for president. What year are you going to run? We'll see. But um, anything is possible. I really, I really think so. Maybe you'll start with mayor. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Um, but I want to let you know, just first of all, thank you so much for this opportunity, Emily, for having me on your show. And I don't know if there's going to be questions or whatnot. Let me know. Um, if you get any thank questions you. from your listeners, uh, I'll be happy to oblige. But it's always... How can people reach you? How can people reach yeah. you if they have something? So you can reach me on Facebook at Adrian Hale ROC. Um, that's uh, you know, just Adrian Hale on Facebook. It's Adrian Hale ROC on Twitter and Adrian Hale on LinkedIn. And if you can't remember any of those, if you go on the Greater Rochester Chamber of Commerce, that's Rochester, New York, you go on our website and you go under our people or our team. You can go down to Adrian Hale and see me as senior manager of Workforce Economic Development Education Initiative. And you can email me. You can call me. My office phone is there. Um, I'm happy to answer any kinds of questions or if you just need some support or anything, just feel free to reach out. Um, and Emily, if any of your re uh, listeners reach out to you, just feel free to connect us and I, I answer any questions that they might have. And I'm just grateful for any moment that I get to share my experiences. And I'm, I'm always hopeful that they will be exactly what whoever heard it needed to hear. So thanks. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Anything like any parting words of wisdom? Anything you want to just like share? Nope. I'll at just the end here. Uh, stay tuned. I, I feel like in many ways, this is only the beginning. And I look forward to contributing to our city in so many ways. And Great. that's it. Love it. All right. Thank you, Adrian. Thank you, Emily. Thanks for listening to the Choice Happens podcast. For more inspiration, go to choicehappens.com. Until next time, think, choose, do, be awesome.